You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 190 by Rudolf Steiner, Past and Future Impulses and Societal Events, 12 Lectures, translated by Paul King. This is Lecture 10, given in Dornach on the 12th of April, 1919. Let us briefly recall what we tried to explain yesterday. We said that present-day civilized humanity as a whole is passing through something similar to what, in the development of an individual person, we can call the crossing of the threshold into the spiritual world. When we discuss the development of the individual in the way I have done in my books titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, How Is It Achieved, and titled The Threshold of the Spiritual World, we usually have in mind the conscious ascent into supersensory life. With the crossing of the threshold, we also have in mind there a completely conscious process, as we have often described. I said yesterday that we mustn't take the concepts too rigidly when we are required to transpose them from one area to another. I must therefore say, what the whole of humanity is presently going through is something similar to a crossing of the threshold. I have already indicated that it could indeed happen, it is certainly possible, that humanity rejects spiritual science. It would then have no means by which to know anything about the fact that the whole of humanity is undergoing such a process as the crossing of the threshold. Completely different processes take place in what has to pertain as the crossing of the threshold for the whole of humanity, from those that take place in an individual person when entering in a conscious way into the supersensory world. And I indicated yesterday that the crucial point for humanity as a whole in crossing the threshold, which must happen during the course of the fifth post-Atlantean epoch, the age of the consciousness soul, consists, as you already know, in its essentials, in the splitting of the three soul faculties into a certain mutual independence. For the whole of humanity, I am not talking now about the individual, but about humanity, insofar as people interact with one another. For the whole of humanity, thinking, feeling, and willing will not remain so chaotically mixed together as they are now. The soul life of all humanity separates out in such a way that people feel their thinking, feeling, and will to be more independent than was previously the case. And this is why humankind needs the division of the social organism into three areas in the future, in a way that was not needed in the past. When one talks today about this threefold structure of the social organism, one is talking out of the awareness of something that the universe is carrying out with all humanity as a matter of necessity, according to spiritual laws. Now we mustn't make the mistake of immediately seeing individual events too much in terms of the greater comprehensive picture. We have only undergone a small portion of consciousness soul development since the middle of the 15th century. An age of this nature lasts for more than 2,000 years. So this age of consciousness soul development 
will continue for a long time still and will be evident in various stages in a variety of events but which we must understand as this crossing of the threshold into the supersensory. So, please, do not make the mistake in your thinking of identifying only the present world catastrophe as the more encompassing aspect I spoke about yesterday. It would be a mistake to do so. But it is no mistake to try to understand the events in which one is living, what is happening around one, in terms of the great processes that encompass long ages. For we only find our way in relation to individual events if we understand them in this way. So, let us discuss something today that is part of the symptomatology, the indicative symptoms of this development of the fifth post-Atlantean epoch after crossing the threshold. The emergence of the age of consciousness-soul development can be seen particularly clearly in the culture of Central Europe. To be sure, the emergence of Central European culture was in distinct preparation already in the 10th, 11th, 12th and 13th centuries, then led to certain events which we will presently discuss and took shape in Central Europe in such a way that has led very particularly at the present moment of humanity's development to the catastrophe in Central Europe and must simply continue to lead in this direction. The fact is that this Central Europe is doomed to experience certain things, firstly more rapidly and secondly more energetically, more characteristically than the rest of Europe. We can say, we can clearly see how toward the 15th century there emerges in Central Europe an element that ushers in the age of consciousness soul development. And now we can see in the catastrophic events precisely in Central Europe, what a hard journey humanity has to cover in this age of consciousness-soul development, what hard battles, what terrible upheavals have to be undergone so that the age of consciousness-soul development can push the impulses that lie within it to the surface of historical development. When we look at the year 1200, we find that this in particular has a certain significance for Central Europe. This is generally taken to be the approximate time at which the Nibelung saga was completed. The comparison is often made that this saga was for the central European populace what Homer was for the Greeks. What comes to expression in the Nibelung saga in pictorial, imaginative form is the evidently significant destiny of a people in a time far preceding the age in which the Nibelung saga was completed. And anyone today who looks at the Nibelung saga with an honest inward frame of mind, and at what others later created from it, individuals like Wilhelm Jordan, Richard Wagner, and others, will have to say to themselves that the humanity, the human nature that shines out from the Nibelung saga, is basically, by now, little understood by the modern person. The Nibelung saga refers back to a time when Central Europe looked very different from how it was after the beginning of the 12th century. The Nibelung saga points back to a time in which even the landscape of the Central Europe must have looked very different, a landscape that produced very different human characters from those of later times. If one has a pictorial, perceptive capacity, one can't but sniff out 
if I can put it like that, from the Nibelung saga, how the people this story tells about lived in isolated expanses that were covered far and wide by dense forest. Forest character and everything that influences people by living in lands covered with forest is what the Nibelung saga expresses. We can't imagine that the Nibelung people, even in their form in the Nibelung saga, where the characters are very humanized, looked like the people, for example, of Germany later on, in the year 1200. We must picture these people as having a different soul life from those later people. We must picture them as having far more instinctive, more elemental feeling than people of later times. The ray of Christianity had also not yet entered into these Nibelung people. However, we don't want to look so much at the content of this soul life as at what comprised its structure, its quality. It was altogether more instinctive, if we don't misunderstand this word. Something wilder, more elemental, with a more primordial force than later, welled up in people. Roughly after the end of the time referred to in the Nibelung saga, there arises what we can call the medieval burgher period of Central Europe, the period of the Central European bourgeoisie, or middle class. How did this come about? It came about by wide areas of the forest being cleared so that over large stretches of Central European land, in areas which had previously been covered by almost impenetrable forest, there now appeared meadows and cornfields. This produced people who were different from the last of the forest people. This brought about the emergence of the Central European middle classes in the first period of consciousness soul development. And indeed, the characteristic attributes of these European middle classes cannot be seen more strongly than in Central Europe. The reason for this is that in Central Europe up to the present time, the destiny of the middle class has, I should like to say tragically, been rounded off, because in our day it has reached a certain conclusion. The middle class in Central Europe has basically reached the end of its development, because of its characteristic disposition and its nature, precisely in Central Europe, it has gone through certain things, due to the world catastrophe and what is now following after it, it will continue to undergo certain things completely different from the rest of Europe's middle classes. Those other European middle classes will pass through certain phases of development which in the Central European middle class are already clearly pointing to a final catastrophe. Thus, in Central Europe's middle class, we already have a kind of rounded-off destiny. Its emergence in the period when wide stretches of later Germany are transformed from forested regions into fields and meadows, then its development from the 13th to the 20th century, and its terrible, tragic fall in the 20th century. The symptomatology of this phenomenon, which in Central Europe has come to a certain conclusion, cannot be studied anywhere other than in Central Europe. And anyone who is serious about really looking at the great impulses of human evolution should not be faint-hearted about focusing their attention on the characteristic and significant symptoms that come to expression here. For everything else in Europe can only be understood if we look impartially from the highest perspective of spiritual science at this rounded-off sequence of destiny. 
We are actually talking only one-sidedly about a cultural trend when we say, quote, from the 13th century onward, there emerges from the Nibelung people the subsequent Central European bourgeoisie that becomes the bearer of this Central European culture, close quote. This is talking about it one-sidedly. However, it is nevertheless true and rightly applicable within the boundaries of this region, because within this region, although in a one-sided way, the sole mood that can be attributed to the Central European middle class spread out over the towns of Central Europe. It was from this middle class that the culture of Central Europe developed. From one perspective, this is perfectly correct, but it is not the whole truth. It is only a portion, a a part of the phenomena that have emerged in Central Europe and which, along with many things that have developed with it, is today gasping its last. The other side is that an element of the old forest and Nibelung people still exists. These are people whose nature is such that they still have living in their soul the age about which the Nibelung saga tells us. The people who, if I can put it like this, developed under the sunshine of the cornfields and meadows into the middle classes of Central Europe, were not the only people who developed from the year 1200 and on into the 20th century. There were other people present who had retained something of the old inner soul-wildness and soul-primitiveness of the Nibelung people. When we look at a phenomenon such as this, we must not forget that the forward movement of time has significance for the development of humankind, that it is a reality in human evolution. And someone who retains what actually belongs to a previous age of soul culture doesn't remain in the same soul mood that prevailed in that old soul culture, but becomes decadent, falls lower, comes into a trajectory of decline. They become alien to what is appropriate to the new time. They develop in a later period what ought to have been developed in an earlier one. In the later period they don't, therefore, develop this in the way they would have done in the earlier period, but pathologically. They develop it with the characteristic signs of decline, of decadence. Thus we see one line of development in the modern era, middle classes of Central Europe the uppermost product of the cornfields and meadows that were cleared from the forests, and, on the other hand, amongst these burghers of Central Europe we see people who had retained the old soul life of the Nibelung period, who had adopted the New Age and even Christianity only externally, and therefore expressed this old inner Nibelung soul character in a state of decay. These people who expressed this old Nibelung character in a state of decline are the medieval territorial princes and their followers who have now been toppled from their thrones by the dozen. To this medieval progeny belongs preeminently everything that has to do with the substance, the human substance of the House of Habsburg, but also with the other territorial princes of Central Europe. No one can understand what is actually happening so tragically at the moment who is not able to see that for centuries the more advanced portion of the Central European population has been ruled and governed by the portion which, in a form of decay, has retained the sole character of the old, wild people of the Nibelungs. 
There was indeed an immense contrast between the completely inner soul configuration of the people we could call the offspring of Central European burgerdom and those who sat on the kings and princes' thrones and their entourages. The soul of any king of Bavaria or duke of Braunschweig and an average German person who has absorbed an average German education are two completely different mental spiritual potencies. They lived side by side in past centuries like two foreign races, perhaps with even stronger differences than two foreign races. We must have the courage to look squarely at an underground fact of history such as this. For what touches human destiny and human development by far the most is not the external events recorded by conventional history. Now keep in mind that this fate of having to live under a number of individuals who had retained an earlier age in their soul life applied precisely to the middle class of Central Europe, not to the rest of Europe's middle class. To understand this better, take for example what became the English-speaking people who had originated from this Central European burgerdom but had then migrated away. They had not allowed themselves, if I can put it like that, to get involved in the development undergone by Central Europe. They took with them what was present in earlier times in European or Central European burgerdom and had not had to wear it down in struggles with remnants of the Nibelung people. This is why, for example, as I have mentioned elsewhere, certain instincts are present in the English-speaking people for the development of the consciousness soul, which are quite absent in Central Europe. These are instincts primarily for political life, whereas the population of Central Europe had to remain apolitical, non-political, had no disposition to participate in a political life, because they were ruled by people who had retained an earlier age in their soul life. With what magnificent vividness do we meet what I described earlier when we look at the second half of the 18th century and look at the flowering of the Central European bourgeoisie at its intellectual and spiritual flowering? We need only mention Klopstock, Lessing, Herder, Schiller, Goethe, and many others. And we have the flowering of what had developed from the Nibelung age in seminal form around the year 1200. And in the same age, in contrast to these individuals who represent the flowering and whose highest culmination we find in Goethe and Goetheanism, we have the very worst preservation of Nibelung wildness in full decline in Frederick the Great. Look where you might for contrasts in humanity. There is none that appears so tragic in its perspective as that between Goethe and Frederick the Great. With regard to the history that followed this, we can only say that the most extreme thoughtlessness, the most awful indifference toward spiritual intellectual interests emerged in the 19th century and would have to continue into the 20th century so that Goetheanism, the greatest intellectual and spiritual impulse entering into humanity in that century, went as good as completely unnoticed. For almost nothing of Goetheanism has been given consideration by our general culture. To this belongs the whole thoughtlessness, the inner untruthfulness of this 19th and early 20th century culture that takes the impulse of Frederick the Great to be characteristic for the modern age 
the, quote, age of Frederick the Great, close quote. One could actually say nothing more inaccurate about Frederick the Great than what is said in the usual historical accounts. One must see the latest events as being based on this foundation, not only local events, however, but events that impact deeply on international life, events which, to be sure, humanity up to the present day is completely asleep to. Is there anything more tragic-comical than that people who distance themselves from everything that developed in Weimar are now convening in Weimar for the farce of the present National Assembly? It would be simply impossible to think up anything more nonsensical than the convening of this present assembly in Weimar. Simply impossible. This is what I meant earlier when I spoke about a quicker and more energetic development. I am reminded today of many conversations I had in the 80s of the previous century, that is the 1880s, with all sorts of people who are great enthusiasts of German culture. For example, with Heinrich Friedjung, who later wrote a history of the new Austria. I mentioned him in another context in my lecture in the Bernoullianum, and you will find this particular work mentioned in one of my lectures, which is also printed in the lecture cycles. It was said at the time that Central Europe, in the era of Lessing, Herder, Goethe, Schiller, and those associated with them, had reached a culmination of humanity's intellectual development. Friedjung and others who were among the company said, roughly that now things must go further, must continue to ascend. I remember very well that I said, quote, No, that was the climax. From now on there will be a decline. In that era the characteristic nature of Central Europe had taken the subjectivity it had within it and pushed it out onto the surface of human development. Close quote. Naturally, they took great exception to this, perhaps even regarded it as nonsense. I can certainly understand that what I have to say and have had to say throughout my life is regarded by my contemporaries as nonsense. But it is a characteristic phenomenon that what began in the year 1200 reached the end of its course in the stupendous cultural culmination of Herder, Lessing, Goethe, Schiller. That this cultural culmination happened but cannot be understood within the national life of Central Europe. It will only be understood by a spiritual scientific life that is no longer national, as I have always stressed, but wishes to be supranational, international. This should be genuinely cultivated at the present time in our spiritual science, in contrast to all national chauvinism. The characteristic phenomenon will be that only by this spiritual, scientific, cultural life can the true substance of what emerged at the turn of the 18th and 19th centuries, be perceived and lived. We can look back a little to see a certain nuance in this cultural life of Central Europe. For someone who knows how to look at history symptomatically or symptomatologically, there is a very curious fact pointing to deep historical secrets. This fact was that in 1077, so quite a long time, relatively, before the beginning of the new consciousness soul age, Henry IV, a representative of the old Nibelung soul wildness, like all the Salian emperors and the Saxon emperors along with him, had in 1077 to do his terrible penance at Canossa, 
before the former monk of Cluny, or at least an adherent of Cluniac monasticism who had become a great pope. For the great Pope Gregory, who had excommunicated Henry IV and forced him to walk to Canossa, was completely under the influence of the Cluniacs. This influence comprised the aim and movement in the church at that time to raise the church to an overwhelming power, to an overwhelming empire in Europe. And all the wildness of the old Nibelung nature came to expression in the Salian Henry IV in his whole relation to Pope Gregory. And then there was something else that came to expression which continues in a certain way still. What came to expression was that Central Europe could simply not avoid coming into conflict with what, via Rome's influence, had become pseudo-Christianity, with what, out of the original Christian impulse, had become a Christian empire. The old Nibelung wildness had still had to reckon with the Imperium Romanum, but was defeated in a certain sense. It was then superseded by the trend I characterized for you that rose up over the cornfields and meadows of Central Europe's transformed forests. Fundamentally, this new and transformed continuation of the old Nibelung culture was not predisposed in any way to absorb directly the impulse of the Imperium Romanum. It was actually continuously bristling against a politicized Christianity, a Christianity politicized from Rome. And while, on the one hand, it expanded its own nature, unfolded what was in its own being, on the other hand, it saw itself bowed down, ruled, governed by those who, in the way described earlier, had retained and brought to a condition of decline the old soul wildness of the Nibelungs. I will say again, in order to understand such things, we must be clear in our spiritual science that when something that was great in an earlier age is retained into a later time, it becomes pathological and falls into decline. This is what characterizes the contrast between everything that rose up at the beginning of the 13th century, after the old forest clearances, what began to ring out from earth to the skies in the songs of Walter von der Vogelweide and led to Gertianism. That is the one side, which is apolitical and goes through a cycle of development in itself. And this, through its own structures and without recognizing the importance of the fact, has beside it on the thrones and in the principalities the declining characters on the other side of the Nibelungs. These were the conditions and the situation in Central Europe at the coming of the 19th century, particularly in its second half and the 20th century. And with this, 19th and 20th century Central Europe was confronted in a different way with what we must describe as Europe of the present excluding Russia. Among the things that require so much discussion at the present time are talks precisely on modern industrial development, on the age of the machine, on rising capitalism. These are international phenomena. When we speak about the rising age of technology and machines, of the industrial and capitalist age, we are talking about international impulses. But these international impulses have come into effect everywhere in a different way. How one might wish for an impartial description without the dreadful prejudices learned at school that have slipped into conventional history in all areas, 
of what developed in Central Europe from the days when Walter von der Vogelweide sang his songs to the days when Goethe spoke of the most elevated things to a humanity that no longer understood his words. One could wish that at some point what lay in these years of development could be described impartially. One could wish for this to be described in complete accord with the truth. For then untruth will have to be eradicated from where it has penetrated so elementally into human hearts and souls, so that even the most truthful person had to become untrue. Untruth will have to be eradicated from true history. Even Goethe was induced to this untruth when he spoke about Frederick the Great, because the power of the prevailing general preconception was so strong that even the most truthful person could not but go along with the others. Truth requires something quite different from any sort of blind belief in authority or the like. This is why truth is such a shunned individuality in the development of humankind, such a shunned entity. This is why the truth is what produces so much tragedy in human development. If one were to describe in accordance with truth, without bias, what lies in the development from the age in which Walter von der Vogelweide sang his songs to the still-buried treasures of intellectual life that Goethe spoke about to his contemporaries and to posterity, we should be able and obliged to speak about a very particular revelation in the modern age. But we should be impelled to make people aware that for humanity in general, on the earth, something was developing anonymously, something was happening, and what was not anonymous, what was regarded as world history, was the luciferic elaboration of the old Nibelung wildness. Thus from 1200 to the 20th century, what was developing naturally in Central Europe stood over against a luciferic sphere comprising the retarded Nibelung wildness and unfolds as soul life in the modern age. If we look at what had its starting point around the year 1200 and put this alongside the luciferic element of the princedoms, the territorial princes, we will understand the special nature of the collaboration that came about as the Aramonic element emerged as modern industrialism with its technology and capitalism and entered into its terrible Aramonic luciferic association with a central Europe that was headed toward the last gasp of its final phase. It was in the last decade of the 19th and the first decade of the 20th century that the collaboration came about between industrialism and the old territorial principalities, the old junkerdoms and their adherents, of the declining Nibelung wildness. What has brought about the fall of Central Europe is the marriage of industrialism with the institution of territorial principalities, the political government of Central Europe. What prevented the course of development proposed in my call for a true mission of Central Europe and Germany was the Aramonic luciferic marriage of rising industrialism, which had taken hold of other regions in a different way from the region dominated by the old Nibelung wildness in the territorial principalities of Central Europe. 
and when the time comes to describe openly and freely the terrible symptoms that prevailed in the tragic world-historic downfall between 1914 and 1919, which will have continued to prevail precisely in Central Europe, we will have to describe the terrible and cruel collaboration in Central Europe of the old reprobate Nibelung nobility with the rising industrialists of Central Europe, whose world-historic position was unjustified in the light of the inner soul needs of the time. The type of individuals that emerged in Central Europe from these two circles were individuals who in boundless arrogance from smug practice had for years trodden down anything that might work toward the reawakening of a recognition for what had begun to sing in Walter von der Vogelweide and came to a conclusion in Gertianism. It is no wonder that the wider world coined the word militarism to denote with such inaccurate accuracy, with such accurate inaccuracy, this much deeper phenomenon. For the world outside Central Europe is not so very much more profound than Central Europe, truly not. There was no understanding for Central Europe anywhere else, even though we have to say that what had developed in Central Europe, up to Goetheanism, took giant strides backward after Goethe's time. When we speak about crossing the threshold to the supersensory, we must always remember that in ancient times people knew a great deal through their atavistic clairvoyance about what happens to the human soul when it crosses this threshold to the supersensory, namely the portal of death. Various things are happening in humanity, which already today are indications, in a soul-spiritual way, of a passing through the portal of death. And there are various things, as I will say once more, which as isolated phenomena we should not immediately directly identify with the great transformative revolutionary impulses of world historical development. But we must be able to bring the details of what happens around us into the illumination that spiritual science can be for us and which sheds light on the great transformative impulses of the times. Remarkable things indeed have happened precisely in Central Europe, characteristic phenomena. What I have often described to you as that which expresses the reality of soul life through language can be pursued precisely to the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries in this Central European intellectual life. The industrial, technological, capitalist coloring gradually acquired by Central European culture and which has had its impact everywhere caused the time before the 12th century to be completely forgotten. Actually, the Germans at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century did not know in reality how they had become and what made them Germans. They didn't know this, had basically no idea. They absorbed the events of this earlier history in a real soul sleep, for nothing had penetrated into the consciousness of the so-called educated classes who gradually distanced themselves from what had come to a conclusion in Goetheanism from the real intellectual substance that had begun to emerge there. And thus it could happen. And such phenomena could be multiplied a hundred times, a thousand times over. That elementary people developed an inclination 
to take a glorification of the age of Germanic heroes, as written by a word-blubberer like Ernst von Wildebruch, as serious dramatic art or serious literature. One can barely keep up with all the things Ernst von Wildenbruch has produced in his dramas about this or that Kaiser, Queen, Prince, and so on, of the distant past. And always the most insignificant family events, never the world-historic impulses. One has the feeling that the words in his works sound like tin, like beaten tin. But we have even come to the point in the age of industrialism which must have a devastating effect precisely on a people originally predisposed to spirituality in the way the German people are, that people feel the clanging of Ernst von Wildenbruch to be true poetry. And there's more. We have come to the point where people who, from a classical sensibility, from the sensibility they have acquired from classical times, who have gone through a really refined intellectual apprehension of the new art, who have attained a fine intellectual apprehension of their phase of development within the development of humanity. People like Hermann Grimm, who you know is an individuality I admire most of all among modern individualities. We have come to the point where such an individuality as Hermann Grimm can stand in wonder, in deep wonder, before the soulless babble of words from Ernst von Wildenbruch, and compare it to the works of the greatest poets of world history. This is how far modern humanity has come from an inner apprehension of what is true reality. This must be noted if we want to characterize the age in which we live. It must not go without being emphasized or characterized if we are to understand what it means that our age is passing in a certain way through a spiritual death in order to reach a higher stage of human evolution. The end of Lecture 10